Folks, I want to take just a second and, and just thank some people. You know, church doesn't happen just because uh, one of the pastors gets here and turns on the lights first thing in the morning. We've had so many people from the, the shuttle to the parking lot to the greeters and ushers that got here at 7 o'clock this morning. Our choir and orchestra has been in place all three services this morning. Been here since 7.30. Some of y'all were still trying to put together the chocolate bunny at 7.30 this morning. And uh, they've been here and I just thank them so much. Talk about suffering for the Lord. They're getting ready to hear this sermon for the third time. Now, that's got to count for something in heaven, doesn't it? Hey, who said yeah? Wait a minute. But I want to thank them very much for what they do to help all of us have such a wonderful opportunity to see the Lord in His glory. Uh, You know what? One day, my parents are going to pass away. I'm very grateful. It doesn't seem like that day will be anytime soon. They're, they're both healthy and strong and sound of body and mind, I anticipate. I, I certainly hope I've got many more years with them. But we all know what life does. We know where it's going. And uh, they will pass away. Maybe it'll be my father first. And you know, when that happens, boy, I will, I will hurt. And I'll grieve. I know some of you will, will minister to me and pray for me and help me during that time. Of course, I'll fly home and be with my family and, and care for them and bury my father. And there'll be a time of grieving there. Of course, at some point, I'll, I'll come back. And, and I can kind of imagine myself being in the pulpit and, and thanking you for your, your prayers and just you know what it was like getting through this, this last week. But the good news is... You don't need to be concerned anymore. You don't even have to pray for him anymore. Because uh, we buried my dad on Friday, but he picked me up at the airport on Sunday. It was incredible. Man, it was so encouraging to see him again and, and to be able to talk. Well, all my grief just melted away. Now, what would you do? You'd probably just stare at me. You'd think, is he going somewhere? Is this some kind of strange illustration? Or is there some kind of awkward punchline to this? Maybe out of respect for my grief and maybe just thinking you didn't quite understand what I meant. Maybe a lot of people wouldn't say or think anything. Just kind of let it roll off. But what if I persisted in that? Not just in that sermon, but in in days and weeks to come. I insisted that I have continued to see my father and to meet with him. Oh yeah, we buried him, but he's up and walking around and we talk all the time. You know, I bet after a while that, that might actually start to cause a problem. Matter of fact, I could actually imagine a situation where it, it might cost me my job. You'd think, hey, guys, just come undone. He, he can't handle the, the pressure, can't handle the grief. Now, if, if that might be the case, if that might be the reality of it, then, then why is it we're all here this morning? I mean, is it any less crazy to believe what we believe? I mean, think about all we've done already today. We've, we've gotten dinner going probably for this afternoon, and there's the Easter dresses and the chocolate bunnies and the preparing for hiding the eggs, and there's the meal this afternoon, maybe family getting together, and that's the small insignificant stuff. What about the way that you and I live day in and day out, all because we believe this guy was buried on Friday, and he was up walking around on Sunday. Does that make sense? No, no, it really actually does not make sense. Man, in a, in a scientific world like ours, it's, it's hard to really get a hold of that kind of superstitious religious belief. But of course, you know, you don't, you don't have to live in a scientific world for that 
to be difficult to get a hold of. Jesus' own followers had a hard time believing it. They had a hard time making sense of it. Belief is hard, but it is absolutely necessary to your life. Would you turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 24? Luke chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have some there in the pew. I hope you'll use one of ours and read and study along with us. Luke chapter 24. This is my fourth message now looking at different events surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus. You know, I am positive that a number of things went on that week, the week of the Passion, that we don't know about. I don't mean small, unimportant things. I would imagine there are some very big and important things that happened with Jesus during that week, but they were not recorded for us in Scripture. You know, we don't know that. Which also, on the other hand, means that everything that is recorded in Scripture is there specifically by God's design and God's purpose. This was an element of what happened that week that He wants you and I to know about. There's something in this story that God has put there to call you and I to something. Let's see what that is. What is God calling us to in this resurrection appearance? Look with me at Luke 24. I'll begin reading in verse 13. It says, Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. While they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? He asked him. So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. We were hoping that he was the, gosh, that he might be the one to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the woman had said, but they, they didn't see him. He said to them, How unwise and slow you are to believe in your hearts all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into His glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted for them things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and He gave the impression that He was going farther. But they urged Him, stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So He went in to stay with them. It was as He reclined at the table with them that He took the bread blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized Him. But then He disappeared from their sight. So they said to each other, weren't our hearts ablaze within us while He was talking with us on the road and explaining the Scriptures to us? We just read the, the longest, 
the most detailed account of a resurrection appearance of Jesus. The story begins, as you see there, it starts by talking about two of them. Two of them that were walking home. Now, we can get some help identifying who these two individuals are by going back to verse 9. Look at verse 9 there. It says, Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven. Now, remember, the eleven used to be the twelve. But uh, Judas went over to the dark side. So, he's not with us anymore. We're down to the eleven. It says, To the eleven and to all the rest. Our two guys walking home are from the all the rest. Don't really know how many are all the rest, but they were kind of there together in one location. Probably not a lot of them. And of course, it's not just the, the 11 and all the rest, but verse 10 introduces us to some ladies that were also a part of this. Probably really a pretty small group. When you think of the thousands that used to flock to the show, whenever he was performing a miracle or you know, giving food to everybody. They were there, but now that he's been crucified, there's just this very small remnant of faithful believers. And our two are a part of them. Now, they've just heard that, that Jesus' tomb is empty. He's not there. And, and that they even say he is alive. Look at how they responded. Look at verse 11. It says, But these words seemed like nonsense to them. And they did not believe the women. You know, that actually makes sense. That it was appeared nonsense. I mean, we really, if you think about it, we don't ever actually anticipate putting somebody in the grave and then three or four days later seeing them up walking around. That, that's nonsense. And they couldn't believe that. They couldn't accept that. So it's of this group. It's with this report that these two men come out of. You know what? Disappointment makes it hard to believe, doesn't it? Disappointment makes it hard to believe. And that's where they're living right now. That's what they're experiencing. So they leave. They leave the group here and, and they at some point on Sunday, they say, you know what, it's time to go home. And so they start heading down the road to Emmaus. As they're heading down the road, they're walking, they're talking with each other. As a matter of fact, it even says that they're arguing. I'm not really sure what they would have been arguing about. Maybe they were talking about some of the things they had seen Jesus do or some of the things they'd heard Him say. And how are we supposed to understand those things now in light of what's just happened with His crucifixion? Maybe they're arguing about the report of the women that morning. But it says they're arguing. You know, I'm sure these guys are on edge. I mean, it's hard to try to fathom the emotions that they're living with at this point. Number one, they're probably very tired. Uh, good chance they have slept almost none since Friday. They're scared that the disciples, these others, they were afraid, hey, maybe now that the chief priests have taken care of Jesus, maybe they're going to round up all of His followers, arrest all of us, perhaps crucify all of us. They're in hiding. They're scared top of all this, they're grieving. Man, they hurt. They loved Jesus. A lot of these people walked away from everything in their lives to, to follow Him, and now He's dead. They're grieving, and now to make matters worse, Pierce's grave has been robbed or something. The body's gone. Man, that's just adding insult to injury. This is the kind of emotion that they're carrying. This is what they're dealing with. They're on edge 
when Jesus walks up behind them. You notice it says in the text that they were prevented from recognizing him. You know, I, I think that's about the most significant phrase in this entire story. They were prevented from recognizing him. Now remember where these guys are. They're hurting. Think of how God, think of how Jesus could have fixed all their problems, resolved their disappointment, resolved their grief, resolved their confusion, could have absolutely taken care of everything by letting them see who he was. But he didn't. Perhaps something is bigger going on at times than just solving our problems. Perhaps God is doing something bigger at times than resolving our grief, our confusion, our disappointment. Boys, I look at this story, it's kind of scary. Apparently God's okay with leaving us in that condition leaving us in that state of confusion or disappointment for a while while he accomplishes the bigger and more important thing. So Jesus walks up behind these two guys and asks what they're talking about. You know, it might look like he's a little nosy to have a stranger. Can you imagine that? You're talking with a friend. Somebody just walks up and says, what are y'all talking about? Now, who are you? You know, actually, this whole scene right here is, is very, very normal in this day and time. You remember now, first of all, it's Passover. People from all over the nation of Israel would have been walking into Jerusalem over the last week to come in for Passover and now there's going to be some that are, are starting to head home. And as they head home, they're not heading to the airport. They're not hopping in the car. They could care less what gas prices are. They're walking. That's where they're going. And you know what? It's dangerous to walk. When you're out there in the wilderness like that, whether it's from thieves and bandits or whether it's from wild animals, it's dangerous to be out there walking in the country. And so they would often gang up. I mean, if there was a family walking over here, they'd hurry and catch up with this family walking over here and they would walk together. If there was a group, they'd catch up with another group. There's safety in numbers. And certainly somebody that was traveling by themselves is going to be looking for people to join as he walks down the road. They would absolutely expect this. They wouldn't think anything about him walking up and joining them like this. But now they did think quite a bit about him asking this question, what's going on? Cleopas, we learned the name of one of them, Cleopas spins around, you know, what rock have you been living under? You know, as you read this, there really, there's an air of almost offensiveness. They're offended by this stranger's ignorance on current events. I mean, how can you not know what is going on? And so they begin to tell him about what's happened. About what happened to, to Jesus that weekend. And more importantly, they begin to tell him about who Jesus was to them, what he meant. Oh man, this guy, he, he was a prophet. He was a prophet before God and the people. And he was, man, he was awesome. He was mighty in, in the way he spoke, in the things he did. You've never seen anything like it. You've never heard anything like it. It was incomparable what it was like to, to be in his presence and just watch him. It was incredible. Boy, he was a special person. And we, we had pinned our hopes on him. Matter of fact, as I look back over this last weekend, I'm almost embarrassed to say it. We, we, thought he might, we thought he might be the Redeemer. We thought this might be the one who's the Messiah. 
You know, those are words that, that we hear when we're in church, but they're not a part of our normal vocabulary. They're not words we think a lot about, Messiah and Redeemer. But I'll tell you what, in Judaism, those were the biggest words they ever uttered. Man, the, the Messiah, the Redeemer, that's the one who is going to enter the world as a glorious king and make everything right. Every wrong was going to be made right. And this king would usher in a kingdom where peace and prosperity and justice would reign and, and Israel would be at the top of this kingdom. I mean, folks, this is everything we hope for. Man, this isn't just a little hope they have. This is a big hope. This is the hope of all hopes. But, of course, the bigger the hope, the risk for the bigger the disappointment. I say it again. Disappointment makes it so hard to believe. They go on and they express to Jesus about what they'd heard that morning by the report of these women. And even as they tell them, clearly there's a, a note of doubt about what they've heard. Look what happens next. Now, now think about Jesus. If you've read the New Testament at all, you know that, that over and over and over, Jesus is described as a man of compassion. I mean, compassion, kindness, gentleness. These are words that are used over and over and over in talking about Jesus. I mean, he sees a need. He sees somebody hurting. He always meets that. He always touches that. He always fulfills that. Now, here are these two men have clearly expressed their hurt, their pain, their confusion about what's going on to Jesus. And He does nothing like show them compassion. Look what He says in verse 25. How unwise and slow you are to believe. Now folks, we can make that a little bit clearer into how we'd say it today. You guys are kind of dumb, aren't you? That doesn't sound very compassionate, doesn't it? You guys are kind of dumb. I don't get it. What's your problem? You think that woke them up? And by the way, the grammar of this passage is such that it really communicates Jesus got up in their face. Gosh, I thought He was compassionate and kind. Why would He be so rough with these guys? He says right here why he'd be so rough. Why don't you already know this? Well, you're hurting and grieving. Why? Everything's been explained to you from the prophets. Remember what Jesus has said. Man, this has already been communicated to you in the Old Testament. It's already been told to you what is going to happen. Why are you acting like you don't know? Your grief, your hurt, your confusion is all based on being ignorant. And you shouldn't be ignorant. And then Jesus goes on to explain to them who He is from the Old Testament. Now, I, I wish it says here, I wish there was another verse that says, And Jesus turned to Psalm 22. It doesn't say that, that Jesus turned to Psalm 22. I don't know what passages He might have used to talk with them about Himself. Maybe it was a passage like that in Psalm 22. You know, Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before Christ walked on this earth. A thousand years, that's a long time. What's written in Psalm 22 was written probably eight to nine hundred years before there was such a thing as crucifixion. Now, with that in mind, let's read Psalm 22, or just listen to me read it, verse 16. 
For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. I can count all my bones. My, my bones are intact. My bones are okay. Why is that such a significant statement? You know, as we come into the Gospels and we look at what happened there at the crucifixion, a very normal part of crucifixion was to break the legs of those being crucified. You have to remember, for the Roman guards, a lot of this was not just carrying out a duty of execution. It was sport. And they'd put these guys on the cross and, and crucifixion was actually a slow way of suffocating to death. But at some point, the Roman guards might just get bored with the whole matter. Might decide it's time to, to move on. Let's go out. We got plans tonight. Let, let's get this thing over with. And at that point, they would break the legs. They would take a big club and they would club right under the knees of the people being crucified. Now that their legs are broken, they can't push up anymore to draw any air. So the slow suffocation now becomes a very quick suffocation. So we read the Gospels. They went to the right of Jesus and they broke that criminal's legs. They went to the left of Jesus and they broke that criminal's legs. They came to Jesus. They did not break his legs. Why? Because God had already determined a thousand years ago that wasn't going to be a part of what happened. So, you know, they're thinking, Jesus is saying, listen, why are you guys ignorant of what's going on? It says right here, the Messiah, the Redeemer, he's going to be pierced in his hands and his feet. As a matter of fact, listen to this in verse 18. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. A thousand years before Jesus walked on this earth and we've got a blow-by-blow -blow description of what happened at Jesus' crucifixion. So this explains what's going to happen to the Redeemer. But if I'm walking along with Jesus, I might say, well, well why? Why would that be God's plan? Why would the Redeemer, why would the Messiah have that happen to him? And I don't know, maybe Jesus then would have gone to a passage like Isaiah 53. It says in verse 4, Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Why did that happen? Because of your sin and my sin. Punishment for our peace was on Him. He was punished so that you and I would have the opportunity for everything to be okay between us and God. And we are healed by His wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to do our own way. And the Lord has punished Him for the iniquity of us all. Now, as we study Jewish writings, especially writings before Christ came to the world in His first coming, it's very clear that, that, that Judaism was not looking for a Messiah who would suffer, for a Redeemer who would die. They were looking for that glorious King that would usher in the kingdom and make everything right. But Jesus is saying to him here, why were you looking for that? It's always been explained exactly what this is going to look like. As a matter of fact, what God is showing us here is why we want Him to enter our world and clean up the physical mess we've made of things. And that is what He's going to do at the second coming. What Jesus is saying here is more important that I entered this world the first time and clean up the mess you'd made of things spiritually. You want me to clean up the world, and I will, but your soul is in a lot bigger trouble than the world. Now, do you understand? Look at what's happening here. 
These guys are hurting. They're grieving. Jesus has died on a cross. And he comes and he chastises them. He rebukes them. He expects belief out of them. Why? Because it was all written in this book. Do you understand that you and I are held accountable for what is written in this book? We, we may or may not read it. We may or may not understand it. But make no mistake, you are held accountable for everything in here. Because God has given the answers. God has given the plan. God has shown the direction that He is going. And He expects our lives to be guided by that. He expects us to believe. No doubt. We're to have no doubt there. Jesus shows no compassion. Think about what a big thing that is. He shows no compassion on them because they're either ignorant of what was in this book or they didn't believe what was in this book. Oh, folks, if you're hurting today, don't let it be because you don't know what's in the Bible. Don't let it be because you don't believe what is in the Bible. Or you may find yourself one day standing before God and Him saying, you're not real smart, are you? So Jesus and these two guys arrive at home or their home. They encourage Him to come in. He goes in, sits down to, to dinner with them, breaks the, blesses the meal, breaks the bread, and pow! Their eyes are opened and they see Him! They see him. It's Jesus. It's true. It's real. And then he's gone. Ah! What just happened there? Oh, folks, let me tell you what's happened there. Let me tell you when God moves. Let me tell you when God opens your eyes. When you believe. Do you hear the lesson here? God's speaking, saying, I expect you to believe. And that belief is to be what moves you through grief. That belief is to be what builds your hope. That belief is how you look at and define and interpret and respond to the circumstances of your life. And that belief is to be bigger. Listen to this. That belief is to be bigger than any circumstance you face. Jesus says your belief should not waver one bit even as you stare at my dead body on the cross. Your belief is to be bigger than that. Oh, Easter's call is for us to believe no matter what's going on in our world. We're called to believe. And, and, and the lesson continues by Jesus disappearing so quick. You see, they, they've seen Jesus. They know He's alive. They know He's real. They're looking at Him. But then He's gone instantly. All of a sudden, there's an opportunity to go right back to doubt. Did, did, I, did, I just see, did you see that? Were we both hallucinating? Were we both smoking the same thing? What's going on here? I mean, serious, folks. If he disappeared that quickly, you know what you're going to do. You're going to tend to doubt. You see, God's not done. The question of God in their lives that day, the question of God in your life today is, are you going to believe? And that belief should be bigger than anything. In your life. You know what I'm saying? There is nothing in your life that determines more who you are, what you're doing, where you're going, how you respond than that belief. Easter calls us to believe. Is God calling us to nonsense? 
I mean, is this really, is this no different than, than me coming up here and saying, well, I buried my dad on Friday, but man, he picked me up at RIC on Sunday. Is that nonsense? No, it's not. What happened with Jesus is nothing like the story I might tell about my dad picking me up at the airport. Here's why. The Old Testament outlined specifically what was going to happen. Jesus outlined specifically what was going to happen. It happened. And then he appeared and gave more evidence and proof that it happened. Let me tell you something. Faith is not being anti-intellectual and anti-science. Faith, New Testament faith, is not calling us to nonsense. New Testament faith calls us to weigh the evidence of history. Calls us to weigh the evidence of Scripture. And then asks us to conform our life to it because of our belief and our faith in it. And that belief determines how I look at things. That belief determines how I act. That belief determines everything about me. Let me tell you what belief is not. Belief is not celebrating Easter because I'm an American. Belief is not saying, well, yeah, sure. Jesus rose from, rose from the grave. That's how I was raised. That's how I was raised to believe. That's not belief. That belief will leave you prevented from recognizing Jesus. We are called, Easter calls us to believe. God's Word says that your sin has separated you from Him. But in an amazing, I think we sing the song, Grace. He loves you anyway. But a holy God doesn't just pretend like sin's not there. Doesn't just pretend like you tried your best. Holy God, that sin has to be corrected. It has to be paid for. And He sent His Son to enter this world and to take on the punishment that you and I could not bear. That you and I could not handle. And they killed Him. And they buried Him. And on Sunday, He rose again, proving He was the Son of God. Proving that our salvation had been won. Do you believe? Are you living like it? Easter wants to know. Let's pray.